I ask that you turn with me, if you would, please, in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28, this morning as we begin. Matthew's Gospel and chapter 28. Those astute theologians here will immediately recognize that that's the last chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. So if you get to Mark, you went too far. Just back up a little. From the beginning of Christianity until this day, there have been all kinds of lies about Jesus, about who He is, who He was, and what He did. We read here in Matthew chapter 28, if you would please look down to verse 11. Now while they were on their way, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests and all that had happened. Now we're talking about, of course, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. The tomb was empty. What on earth are the Pharisees going to do now? He's been raised from the dead, just as he said. That's what the angel even says in this text. He's not here. He's been raised from the dead, just as he said. Now what are they going to do? Well, verse 12, And when they had assembled with the elders and the council together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, You are to say... His disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. And they took the money and did as they had been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews, and is to this day. Lies about what happened. Obvious lies. Do you get it? How on earth would they know what happened if they were asleep? Obvious lies. I also tend to believe that these soldiers were executed by Rome shortly after this, because that's the penalty for sleeping on your post so they would have taken the money uh, probably only as like a pension for their family uh, in, in the light of their demise which was probably very soon but they lied and lies about the resurrection of jesus christ are spread to this day to this day People deny the resurrection of Christ and say it is impossible. People do not get up from the dead. And they're right. Without the power of God, it is impossible. But with God, who is the creator, all things are possible, including your resurrection from the dead. That's why they want to lie about it so much. Because they want to deny the fact that there's life after death. But right from the very beginning, lies about Christ, lies about Christianity. How many lies do you hear about Christianity all the time? You get this one a lot. I, I, this makes me cringe. Why, Christianity 
is responsible for the deaths of more people in the history of the world than all the wars put together, or some such nonsense. And they're referring to the Inquisition, they're referring to the Crusades, they're referring to all these things that were done by Rome, Roman Catholics. I stand before you as one who say that that is not biblical Christianity. You can blame it on the Catholics, but don't blame it on us. It is not biblical Christianity that goes around torturing and killing people. But all these lies, perhaps you didn't realize it, but that even in the early church, there were heresies and lies that were springing up. And it was so early in the early church that the writers to the epistles actually had to address them and did address them in your Bibles. If you would, turn to Second John. Second John. One of the earliest heresies to infiltrate the church was a teaching known as Gnosticism. Gnosticism had a number of different things that were part of it. One of them was that the material was sinful and only the spiritual could be holy. But flesh and blood and the material was sinful and therefore Jesus was not an actual man. He was not really an actual flesh and blood man because you see flesh and blood is material and if he was God, he could not be material because material is bad. Only spiritual is good. So the thinking was that I guess Jesus was kind of like a ghost, but he wasn't really a man. That was an early heresy that began to be taught in the churches. And so here in 2 John, if you look down to verse 7, he has to address it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the Antichrist. I don't want to upset too many people, but Antichrists are all around and have been from the beginning of the church. This is part of the teaching of the Bible that Antichrists are those who are Antichrist. And Christ was a real man, flesh and blood, as much man as if not God, true God, as much God as if not man. This is what we call the hypostatic union. This is the teaching of the Bible. True God, true man. And those who denied the fact that he was true man were teaching heresy. And John had to address it. Now with that background in mind, I ask you to turn with me to our text as we look again this morning at our Lord's 
address to the church in Laodicea. So turn to Revelation chapter 3. For apparently there were some heresies affecting this church as well. And one of them is addressed by our Lord in his own description of himself to the church. As we continue in our study today of the last of the seven churches addressed by our Lord in the book of Revelation, dear Laodicea. After looking at an overview of the book of Revelation, which is, as we saw, the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, and as we saw that the book is meant to be a blessing to those who read it and to those who heard it read, it is not a book of confusion. It is a book of blessing. Even as our brother mentioned the ministry of David Miller and how he teaches men to memorize Scripture. This book was to be memorized by the people who heard it. Imagine that. You see, they did not have these. And so they would oftentimes put the books of the New Testament to tunes, to a song. Now, Many of you have a hard time memorizing Scripture. But I could probably quote to you all the words from a number of Beatles songs 50 years after the fact. That's what they did. They put it to music at times so they could memorize the words. So this book was meant to be unto edification and a blessing to the people who would hear it. Not confusion, but blessing. That's even what it says in the first chapter. We also from there went on to see a little bit about the city of Laodicea. And I want to remind you of that again this morning, that the city of Laodicea was a very wealthy city. It was in a perfect spot for trade and travel. It was, as you recall, like the last city on that semi-oval preaching route. When you get all the way to the top, Pergama, you come back down. And Laodicea was almost directly across from the port city of Ephesus, about 100 miles inland. And so people would come in at Ephesus and go across, heading inland into Turkey, and they'd go right through Ephesus. Or people would come down from the European area and come down to the sea through Ephesus. So it's very wealthy. Because of its trade, so wealthy, it became a center for banking. And you remember that they had two primary things that they had developed or had in Laodicea that became important to their wealth. One was wool. Black, shiny wool from sheep that would have black, shiny wool. And they would shear the sheep and they'd have that shiny wool, and it became very valuable. And also, if you remember, they had a medical center, a center for teaching where they developed ISAV. And it was very valuable and useful because in that day there was so much dust that would get into your eyes and it was helping those 
people who had irritation in their eyes. So it was a wealthy city. And these will become important as we look at what Jesus says to Laodicea. Well, we went from there and we turn now again to the description of the one addressing the church. Verse 14, to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the Amen. That is, the one who is the God of truth. Jesus is saying to them, I am of all truth to you. The Amen. Truly, truly, I say to you. Amen, Amen, I say to you. He is the God of Amen, the God of truth. Last Lord's Day, we looked at the second term that he uses in this text, the faithful and true witness. In the Greek, it's the witness, faithful and true. So he is a witness. And we saw that in his ministry, he was a thorough witness, a faithful witness of the eternal truth of God, never wavering from it that he was also a faithful witness to his own identity as the divine Son of God. And we saw that the perhaps most important aspect, he was a faithful witness to God the Father. As we saw from John chapter 10, that he said plainly, he is the same as the Father, the second person of the Trinity, but the same as the Father. And then we saw from John chapter 12 and John chapter 14 that he showed the world the Father. If you know me, you know the Father. And then from Hebrews chapter 1 where we read that he is the exact representation of the Father. So here in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 14, he is telling them that the most valuable, the most important thing that you can have is me. I bring wisdom. I bring truth. I am the faithful and true witness of truth and of God the Father. Laodicea had been captured by the world and the things of God were less important, which is not at all uncommon today. In churches, captured by the world and the things of God, less important. The things of His Word, less important. But how thankful we are to have Jesus, His ministry, a faithful and true witness of the Word and truth of God. A faithful and true witness about Himself as the Son of God. A faithful and true witness about the Father God. Now, all of that by way of review. But today we pick up with the final title that our Lord uses to describe Himself in this text. As He says to them, The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, says this. Now, we have this phrase, the beginning of the creation of God. And unfortunately, some have taken it and they use it to support heresy. This 
phrase has been used by some in our day to teach that he was the first one created by God or the first creature made by God. Now, if you look at the English, you look at what it says, the beginning of the creation of God. And so you might say, wow, that's what it says there. I mean, it's saying that, well, he was the first one that God created. They use this to support the heresy that Jesus was not divine. Now, last Lord's Day, I showed you how Jesus witnessed to the fact of his own divinity. He witnessed clearly to the fact that he was indeed the same as God. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. So obviously, this church had a problem with believing in the divinity of Christ. And they deny the divinity of Christ. So right here, ah, say the Mormons, you see, Jesus was the first one created by God. The second one created by God was Satan. They are brothers. One good boy, one bad boy. That is a very brief description of some of what Mormonism teaches. That Jesus was not divine. He was the first one created by God. Lucifer, the second one created by God. They were brothers created by God. And this was one of the first heresies to attempt to influence the early church. As I mentioned in 2 John, some taught that he never came in the flesh, and John had to address that heresy. I invite you to turn with me to the book of Colossians as we see the Apostle Paul addressing this heresy that Christ was not divine. Colossians, and if you would please turn to chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. What we find is that apparently the church at Colossae also had a problem with this heresy. At least it had perhaps begun to be introduced to this church to the point that the Apostle Paul felt it was necessary to stress and to emphasize the truth about who God, Jesus Christ, really was. So if you would, please, look down in Colossians chapter 1 to verse 13. For He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, I want to make sure that we understand that he's talking about Jesus, his beloved son. That's who he calls him, the son of God. Now look what he says, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. There's no mistaking who he's talking about. He's talking about Jesus, the son of God 
in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Now, look at what he says in verse 15. And this also addresses what we're seeing in verse 14 of the third chapter of Revelation. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Very similar language. Now, I mentioned this text last week in talking about the fact that Jesus was the image of the invisible God. That's what he teaches. But look at the fact that the language is very similar to what is used by our Lord in Revelation chapter 3, as he says, the firstborn of all creation. Same language almost. And so once again, if you're to stop there, you Mormons, you'd say, see, he was the first one created by God except for the fact that he goes on. Now let's look at the next verse. For by him all things were created, both in heaven and on earth, invisible and visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Now that, is pretty clear that he's not talking about him being the first one created by God, but rather all things were created by him. He is the creator, not the created. He is the creator. He doesn't say that he was the first thing created by God. Rather, what he's saying is Jesus was the one who created all things. That's pretty clear from verse 16. He's the one who created all things. And Paul does not leave it to our imagination as to, well, was the creator of this thing? Or maybe he didn't create that thing? Or was he? he no, he says he was the creator of all things in the heavens. On the earth, visible and invisible, that covers a lot of ground. Visible or invisible? Whether thrones or dominions or rulers, in other words, he raises up nations, he raises up rulers. He is the creator, not only of the things from the beginning, but he is the ongoing creator and sustainer of the earth. All things have been created by him, through him, and for him. He even raises up rulers. In other words, he is involved in the day-to-day care, provision, ruling of the world. As creator, he is involved in the day-to-day ruling of the world. He leaves no room for doubt that Jesus was the creator. But if that's not enough, He nails it even further in verse 17. He is before how many things? All things. He is before all things. And in him all things hold together. Right now, you are held together by the power of God. 
And Jesus is the God who created all things, including you. He is the creator of all things. And look what he says. He is before all things. You remember our look at what we call Christmas time. The first message that we looked at for Christmas was from John chapter 1. Look there very briefly, but don't lose Colossians. But look back to John chapter 1. Keep a finger in Colossians and just look back. And I'm going to briefly remind you of what we saw in John chapter 1. John says, and this is his account of Christ. Remember we said that Matthew and Luke show the birth of Christ and then establish that he was the Messiah, that he was God. John looks at the fact that he was God and then establishes his birth. And this is what he says in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And then you look at verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Obviously, verse 17, He's talking about Jesus Christ. So... He was with God in the beginning and responsible for the creation of all things. Jesus was, is the divine Son of God. Creator God, not created by God. Back to Colossians. This is what Paul is saying. Verse 17 He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. How could He be the one, the first one to be created, if He existed before anything was created? He is before all things. How could he be the first one created if he existed before all things? Before all things were created. He is not the one who is created. He is the creator. And once again, if you read on a little further, verse 18, he is also head of the body, the church. That goes back to what we're looking at in Revelation the whole fact that Jesus is addressing his church because he is the head of his church. And as the head of his church, he addresses his church. That's why we esteem his word. That's why we follow his word. That's why we preach his word, because he is the head of our church. If we are a Christian church, we want to go by what the head of our church, Christ, tells us. And he tells us everything we need to know in his word. So, verse 18, he is the head of the body of church. And look, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, 
so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. He is the beginning. Not the first one created, but the beginning, existing before anything. What is being said in this text to the church at Colossae is that Christ is the one who began everything. Christ is the cause of creation. Christ is the source of creation. It's not that he was the first one created, but he was the one who caused creation. He is the one who brought creation to come to pass by his power and by his might. He began everything else. He was here before everything else, eternal with the Father, and he began everything else. That's what's meant when it says by the Apostle Paul in verse 15, he is the firstborn of all creation. He is the one who brought it to pass. Listen to it put this way. He is the one who birthed all things. That's more what the language is saying. He is the one who birthed everything else. He is the one who brought to pass everything else. He is the one who caused everything else to be created. This is what the Apostle Paul had to address at the church at Colossae. They obviously had some doubts, and Paul makes it very clear to them here in these verses that Christ is the divine creator, the Son of God, and the divine creator. Yes, Jesus became a man. But before the world was created, he was with God. Now, I'm going to go back to our second message and some of what I just mentioned to you about the geography of Laodicea. Paul is speaking to the church in Colossae. Where was Colossae? You remember I told you? It was nine miles southeast of Laodicea. They were sister churches. Look at chapter 4 of Colossians. Colossians chapter 4. Look down to verse 16. When this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. They were sister churches right down the road. Now, it's not like today where there's churches on every corner, which is, of course, an absolute statement used in a relative sense. They're not churches on every corner, but that's what we say. There were not that many churches around, but this church was only nine miles down the road. They would have known each other. 
They would have been close to one another. And don't you think they would have had the same problem with this heresy infiltrating both churches. So, when we turn to Revelation chapter 3, our Lord Jesus is addressing the church in Laodicea in the same way or similarly to how the Apostle Paul addressed their church down the road at Colossae. He says to them, I am the Amen. I am the truth of God, the God of truth. I am the faithful witness. I am the beginning of creation. And what he is saying to them when he says, I am the beginning of creation, is not that I am the first one who was created, but I am the one who birthed creation. I'm the cause of it. I'm the one responsible for it. I am Creator God. And we take that with what we had with Him being the truth. We take that with Him being a faithful witness to His own divinity in the Gospels. How He clearly said He and the Father are one. How He showed that He was divine in the Gospels. And we take this also and He's saying to the church in Laodicea, You better listen to what I'm telling you. It is eternal truth. It comes from the one who is the true and faithful witness of God's truth, of God Himself. And it is coming to you directly from the second person of the Trinity, the God-man, Jesus, who was not just another man, although He was a man, but He was the God-man who is Creator. I am the God who is Creator. Don't you think that you should listen to the Creator God? He holds your eternity. He holds your eternity. Listen to what I am about to tell you. This, people, is a vital issue in our day. Is Christ divine? Is Christ truly God? It is at the heart of our faith and our belief as Christians. And as we'll see, it goes to the heart of of what a church does as they respond to that question. Is Jesus truly divine? How many times have I mentioned to you from this pulpit and in our Sunday school hours that this heresy is so prevalent in our day and so central to so many cults that are around. No matter how many times or how much they insist, oh, I am a Christian. Glenn Beck is lost. 
He is not a Christian. He is a Mormon. As is Mitt Romney. They are not Christians. Christians do not deny the deity of Christ. Mormons do. Remember? Firstborn, Lucifer, secondborn, brothers. That's Mormon theology. They may deny it, ignore it, try to say, well, no, we don't really believe that. That's Mormon theology. Christ is not divine. He's just a created God, like so many other created gods. In fact, if you know enough in Mormon theology, you become a god. And you will one day, as Jesus did, inherit your own planet. See, because Jesus inherited earth. And I agree. I believe that all Mormons will inherit their own planet. The sun. Where they will burn in eternity forever. Now, I don't really believe that hell is on the sun. But let's give them a planet, all right? Let's give them the sun. It's heresy. Do you believe in the divinity of Christ? Mormons do not. Islam does not. They deny that Jesus was divine. Russellites, better known as Jehovah's Witnesses, deny the deity of Christ. And therefore, they are not Jehovah's Witnesses. They are liars. They deny Christ was divine, as do the Jews. No matter how much sentimentality has been raised among people in churches today, Jews deny the deity of Christ. They deny he was even a prophet. At least Islam says that. Jews deny it. Jews say he was a criminal and a liar and deserved to die. And this is so common in our day. All of these religions are lost religions. They deny the truth of who Jesus is. Now, Laodicea had a religion. They were a church. And we have to believe that sometime In the history of this church, they were sound. They were theologically accurate. And what happens to a church is that someone comes in and brings a new teaching, a fresh word from God. God told me. Does that sound familiar? God told me. I have a new revelation from God. Well, here's God in the book of Revelation telling this church that He is divine. Obviously, part of the new revelation that came to Laodicea was that He was not. For we will go on to see that Laodicea was a dead church. And that when Jesus comes, And this is what we will see just next week when Jesus says, I know your deeds. 
There aren't any. They didn't do anything. Now think with me. Why serve a God who is not God? God, small g. Why serve a God, small g, who is not really God? You might go to church and enjoy the company and have a good time, but why serve Him? Why care what He says if He's not truly God? And before I get too far ahead, does that sound familiar? How many churches are just like that in our day? They have a semblance of religion, but they have denied the power of the one who they profess to serve. And they act as though he is not God. And therefore what he says is not important. And therefore why serve him? Laodicea was a dead church who no longer obviously believed it was worth serving the God of the Bible, Jesus Christ. God help us to always keep close the word of Christ. He is the truth. He is the faithful and true witness. He is the one who is Creator God. I want to close with this. We saw in Colossians, we see here in Revelation, here Jesus Himself, you don't need to say under the power and authority of the Holy Spirit, this is God, Jesus, addressing the church, saying plainly, He's Creator God. But we saw in Colossae, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul addressing that church's problem or perhaps propensity. Obviously, Colossae was dealing with it. They hadn't fallen all the way into it like Laodicea had. But here's the Apostle Paul, and he knew that under the authority of the Holy Spirit, he had to address that problem in that church so that that church would have sound theology, sound understanding that they would know the truth and the truth would guide them. And they would know what they stand for and why they believe it. Jesus addressed it here in Laodicea. Paul addressed it in Colossae. That tells us the importance of having sound doctrine. Paul addressed doctrine. In the church. Here's truth. We need to go by it. Why do so many churches today minimize and even ignore doctrine in their church, in their preaching? It's as if it doesn't matter. What is right and what is wrong? Whatever you believe is okay. Just as long as you're doing well, as long as you're doing good and God's blessing you, whatever you believe is okay. That's not okay. The road to hell 
is paved by heresy. When people think they're going to heaven, how many people can you think of right now? How many churches can you think of right now? I think of my childhood. I think of my family. I think of how they are duped by the so-called churches that they attend with the kneeling and the crucifixes and the statues and the works. Heresy! I think of the multitudes that are involved in some of the cults that we've mentioned. And I think even, I'm sad to say, of some of your families involved in churches where doctrine doesn't matter. What matters is if you feel good, if you're happy, if you go out with a smile on your face so you'll come back next week and put money in the plate. Heresy is rampant in our day because Christians are so untaught. It is true that if you stand for nothing, you will fall for anything. Most converts to Mormonism and Russellites come from Baptists. I would have to imagine a lot of them are former Catholics too. If you don't know what you believe, you're easy pickings. God help me, it is my responsibility to see that that is not the case here. So I make no apologies for addressing false doctrine and warning you against it. Your eternal salvation is what is at stake. Your ability to do as the Bible says and be able to give a reason for the hope that is in you is at stake. Our life as a church that has relevance and meaning is at stake. I should be careful of using that term relevance today. But I mean relevance in the eyes of God. Because that's what really matters. Is what we believe biblical? Is what we believe accurate to the Word of God to the best of our ability? This matters. And this is my desire that in these brief moments that we had together, I'll do whatever I can to bring from the Word of God the things that will strengthen this church in sound doctrine, love for our Savior, and proper worship. My desire is that we would know what God says in His Word, and not just know it, live by it. 
have it govern our lives and govern our church. Paul thought it was important. Jesus showed it was important. It is important. Amen? Let's pray.